0: Well, first, collaborations are hard. Uh, And we say that every day at LMA. And if we could print T-shirts and sell them in the gift shop, we would. Um, But Word and Black has been the easiest collaboration to work with in terms of cooperation among participants. The Word and Black publishers have deep relationships with one another. Uh, They've known each other for several years. There's a lot of trust between all of them. And that's why this works.
1: Welcome to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at everything that's going on in the media over the past week. I'm Chris Ucliffe.
2: I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston.
3: And that clip you just heard is from my conversation with Andrew Ramsamy, Chief Operating Officer of Word in Black. So, that's a publication that was founded in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, and it brings together 10 of the nation's leading black publishers in a news collaborative. Uh, We talked about how the collaborative came together, how they've tripled revenue since launching, and other areas publisher collaboratives could be launched in. So, really interesting chat. Do stick around for it.
1: Before that, though, I think we're going to have an interesting chat around this one because it's not really a particularly news-led discussion we're going to be having this time. So, there's a really, really interesting article written this week. I think we shared it in the newsletter on Toolkit's basically saying that password sharing is not yet a pressing concern for most publishers. Now, this was off the back of all the news around Netflix uh, having a panic attack and deciding to clamp down on password sharing. Um, it's since had to walk that back. That's probably worth pointing that out because everybody had a very, very negative reaction to it. But Toolkit's, uh and Jack Marshall have basically put out the case that password sharing is not a pressing concern for most publishers yet.
2: I love the fact that this is like a proper nuts and bolts story. I think what Jack Russell said is probably right. I don't think, I don't think publishers are losing a lot of sleep over generalist publishers aren't losing a lot of sleep over passwords.
3: Well, you were quite scathing in the newsletter about this. Well, and I can remember, yeah. I, we, I watched <laughs> you I was like, I'm not sure that's quite a fair, like the, the, some of the biggest ones do have sort of, you know, multi-million subscribers. I don't think well it's be. about
2: the number, is it?
1: It's not necessarily even about the number. It's <laughs> Go
2: on, the... own your own saltiness. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, yeah, I was basically saying that even the biggest newspapers out there don't have subscriptions to the order of magnitude that, say, a Netflix does. And Netflix, you know, entertainment subscriptions are under a particularly stringent set of issues at the moment with fierce competition, with their costs spiralling out of control. And the same isn't necessarily true for newspapers. So I was basically saying, yeah, absolutely. Look, this is a really fascinating article, but I think that really the the reason why it's not a pressing concern is that they don't have that many subscribers relatively. And therefore, there's still this huge pool of people out there who they can be trying to acquire as subscribers. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, yeah. I think I think the thing with Netflix is that it's the Netflix subscription, particularly, that's become a bit of a meme in the way that the password sharing has gone about. Like there are people that are on their sort of you know their mum's stepmother's ex boyfriend's account, um, and I don't think I, I mean I assume it does happen with with other streaming services as well, but not to quite the same extent that it's become part of sort of popular culture in that way.
2: Yeah. Do you know what my name is on Netflix? Go on gobshite West coast <laughs> seriously gobshite West coast
3: can we change your name to that on the podcast i get yeah, I'm newsletters gonna,
1: don't worry, don't. <laughs> i'm gonna edit that in
2: address to gobshite West coast
1: <laughs> i was watching a uh, like a collection of bbc game shows from the 80s and they they did one that was introducing a scottish Host, <laughs> whose name was Hamish McWhiskeybreath, <laughs> oh, just the amount of punching down that happened against the Scots and continues to happen against the Scots. <laughs> the well, ridiculous.
2: I'm uh, more than that. One. Okay, well, cop- like,
1: what do you think then is going to be, how do you think this <laughs> <laughs> this uh, conversation is going to evolve? Is it going to well, become I, so, much so? Let more me a... just say
2: something about the difference between Netflix and, and even the New York Times. So you you pretty much can't watch Netflix without a password. So that's where the sharing comes in. Mm. Whereas you can still read bits of the New York Times without logging in or without a password or whatever. So, and the, and news publishers in particular, or general interest publishers, they still care about traffic. Mm. You well know, they're still selling ads. So it's less of an issue. It's a it's a different thing. Where I think it. Where do you think it's different? Is Anesta brought this up uh, in, B, in niche B two B? It's a different conversation.
3: Well, I think this was off the back of um, so in the we'll link to the story in the show notes. But the Netf- uh, the toolkit story said that um, Piano, which is a, a paywall provider, they reckon that it only impacted about one percent of subscriptions, which I thought was quite low. And I wondered if that was a big generalisation across the industry. Because um, I can remember people at Digiday probably about three or four years ago, were, like got really, really angry about this because they, they could see the IP, like people accessing from exactly the same IP, multiple people across companies. So I think whereas you've got B two B subscription publishers have an advantage in that people will expense their corporate subscription, but they're also much, much more likely to password share, and that really affects the revenue you know, when, when when you're not dealing with consumer subscription pricing suddenly somebody sharing a 250 pound a quarter subscription with 10 colleagues that's starting to take a decent chunk out of your revenue yeah definitely. but maybe you know maybe the business says to those 10 colleagues well we're not expensive all 10 of you so we'll buy one subscription and then you can all share it between you So it's a bit i wonder how much businesses it's are sort of perpetuating that, that. Yeah,
1: yeah that's that's a really interesting one isn't it and i think that Peter, you, you flagged up the, or maybe it was you has to flag up the fact that this is potentially being seen as almost a sampling exercise. Mm. Almost a way to, for people who aren't, you know, subscribers in their own right to dip their toe into seeing what the offering is in a way that is, you know.
2: I think you can justify it to yourself that way. I'm not sure that's going to bring many. <laughs> if you've got access to your auntie's Netflix <laughs> password, or sorry, your, your auntie's New York Times or whatever password, are you actually going to go and... Unless you fall out with them, she stops letting you use that. I don't know. I just... I get it. I can see how you can use that as a justification for it. Do you know what this reminds me of is the, the conversation around ad blocking. It's kind of the same thing. You know, if you're going to block the ads, be aware that that has consequences. Uh We're not, you know... We can't stop you. Mm. I, although I guess... I'm probably pretty technical to do, and I guess in the case of password sharing, you could stop people.
3: I think the difference there though is that if you if you put an ad blocker on because one site has a particularly horrendous experience, that affects every other site you visit. Whereas password sharing is quite a deliberate choice to, mm. I suppose, yeah, get get around giving giving a site money, um, like for, for Netflix, if yeah. Nobody's going to be counting the cost of a a shared Netflix subscription, but when you've got, especially like the really niche B two B publishers, where every subscription really makes a difference to their bottom line, Um, I I, I don't have any figures on this, and and the toolkit story didn't sort of distinguish between the two. But I think there is a big distinction between the two, and I think it'd be really interesting to sort of see figures about how, like, is this actually something B two B publishers really care about? I think so.
2: I, I had I had some exposure or experience of this years and years ago. Um, I worked for life sciences publisher. Um, we had a collaboration. There we go. There's that word again <laughs> with, um, some guys that did a, a e learning service for analytical chemistry. You know, it's probably niche content and they kept a very close eye on the password sharing um because it was exactly what you're saying it's like cost them serious money you know i don't know i can't remember what a subscription to that was but say it was 250 quid if there's four people in an office using that mm. and you can imagine where in a b2b place you know there, there's four people with the same sorts of skill sets that want to access that kind of cpd uh, education then it has a, a, a big impact, and they would they would eventually, you know, they would email people and they would say, "Oh, you shouldn't
1: be doing this." And if people didn't pay attention, eventually they would cut them off. I was going to say, what is the solution though when that's when you have identified that?
3: Because if you, if you cut them off, you lose the revenue and probably yeah. you know you're not good friends with them. Yeah, I think and I think the that
1: day and age you've seen as anti-consumer in a lot of ways mm, as well. Um,
3: definitely for the for the B two B publications, corporate subscriptions, I think is something you've, you've got to at least. Consider offering um, because, yeah, if <laughs> I'm not saying the costs aren't justified, but if, if you've got, you know, 10 staff you, in a particular area that you're looking to justify a, a subscription for, then yeah, like do a bundle deal or something like that because it's, it's either that or you lose them.
2: I mean, there's another side to this is, is a, a data aspect mm-hmm. to it. If you're trying to collect first party data and there's mm-hmm. 14 people subscribed on one
1: password, <laughs> you're screwed. You're losing all that data. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I thought that the a really good point that got brought up, particularly around Netflix, was the fact that entertainment subscriptions, entertainment packages like that are only working because they are moderately easier to do than piracy. Whereas it's not, if you make it more difficult, people are just going to revert back to pirating this content.
2: Well, it's not
1: necessarily the same awful. for, it's not necessarily the same for new subscriptions because that free content is available yeah. elsewhere for free yeah. and it's totally fine
2: and accessible. The sense that I'm getting is, all the publishers have more important things to be worried about.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and moving on now to news in briefs and. Podcast ad spending is not seeing a slowdown, according to ad buyers. So this is good news for us, obviously. (laughs) It comes from a story on Digiday which examines some of the reasons why podcasts might not be seeing so much volatility in terms of ad spending as other formats. Uh, It is a sign, hopefully, that personality-led and narrative media is still valued by consumers and ad buyers. But the article also notes that some of that perceived contraction we've spoken about in previous episodes is probably right-sizing following the insane spend from platforms on exclusives and on you know, acquiring analytics companies as well. So the spend from internally within the podcasting industry is slowing a little bit, but ad buying seems to be continuing at pace, which is great. And with all the chat around AI generation of content, it's a welcome bellwether of the fact that podcasting is still relatively valued by, um, it's not easily replicable.
3: So many of these contraction stories were just like, yeah, the, you know, the the market's not dying. E-commerce isn't dying. Podcasts aren't dying. It's just, Just
1: (laughs) we're just getting
3: out of the mental two, two or three years we've had.
1: And not to, you know, be all snarky and cynical again, but I think it probably is somewhat to do with the fact that podcast ad spending is still relatively small compared to other mediums. Mm. It's still, it's still probably worth kicking in a couple of mil if you can. Just because too
3: Well I've I've seen the charts, podcasts. the the difference between time spent and the, the ad dollar spent per like minute of listening. And, and you know podcasts is still the, the smallest medium by a long way. There's
2: a huge gap. God, my head hurts just because you said all that you just said. <laughs> just, all that stuff just confuses me. Talking about being confused, <laughs> there <laughs> is so much stuff at the moment about AI.
1: Yeah. It's everywhere.
2: And <laughs> I mean I'm interested in this. I don't claim to understand it, but I'm interested. The Atlantic is a really good piece I'm talking about the race to the bottom if BuzzFeed starts using uh, chat. Is it chat
1: GPT? or Chat, chat GPT. G, no, chat GPT3 currently, and rumours <gasps> that Microsoft is embedding chat GPT4 into its Bing search engine. Bing. So this time next year, we'll all be using Bing. <laughs> anyway, this piece in The Atlantic is quite a negative slant on it because it's basically saying that It'll you know, all just
2: be these robots and the robots will be get more robots and the competition will all be about robots, not about anything else, which is
3: basically what we were saying last week.
2: Yeah. It's, it's just everywhere. So as an antidote to that, Cecilia Campbell at United Robots has a great piece on what's new in publishing. Just talking about the hype and, and, you know, trying to remind people that, well, they've been doing this for a decade um and other people have been doing it longer and she just she kind of suggested i spoke to her this week and she said everyone needs to just calm down a bit i just focus on the practical applications yeah. and that's i spoke to i mentioned this last week i spoke to charlie beckett at lsc's journalism ai project and he said exactly the same thing he says basically if you're going to try and use ai start with a problem don't start with the technology it's not magic the
3: problem we're trying to, to solve problem. is that our staff are expensive.
2: Yeah. yeah. That's not one that AI is going to solve for you in any direct way. It will, start, it will solve in a very indirect way. Uh, again, just resource-wise, Journalism AI Project has some amazing stuff and they've got a great startup pack, if you want to know more about it. Like I do, obviously, when <laughs> I'm still going, chat GPG or
3: mine's not any less... <laughs> cheerful this time um so the the biggest news publisher on tiktok this week by country mar is lad bible um i honestly thought i was reading do you remember the stories from 2014 about how big lad bible used to be on facebook well i mean they're still huge on facebook um but they've always been one of the biggest news publishers on facebook anyway they've now taken over tiktok as well they've got um 11 followers across their various verticals on the platform which is almost three times as many as the next big uh the next biggest british news brand. Um, doesn't entirely surprise me they've got around 30 people in the business who work on TikTok. Uh, What I thought was interesting from this Press Gazette article, which we'll link to, is that they actually still have a larger team for Facebook because um, Facebook currently provides revenue for publishing on it. Um, TikTok doesn't yet have a direct route to monetization, but they are hoping that... um, They'll, they'll be well enough established by the time that um, that magic money tap gets turned on that they'll be in a good position to start making money. Do we think TikTok will allow monetization first, or will it get banned by the EU? I first? was
1: just about to say, yeah, it, that's a race against time in two different ways. Yeah. yeah.
3: I think my my, my bets on ban. It just it's just going on that same cycle again. That there is a big platform that people sort of put all their resources into, and then the platform goes down the toilet and you lose loads of money, and it's just
2: have we not been I here guess, before? I guess though, in that sense they won't lose loads of money because they're not making any in the first place.
3: Well, the the salarying of 30 people to work on this stuff. Not not exclusively, but you know, the that's a lot of resource and a lot of money putting into making stuff for it just to grow followers that you're not making any money for.
1: Yeah, but it's probably good fun.
3: <laughs> Can't buy food with fun.
1: You say that, but like a couple of weeks ago I got um a free hot chocolate in the market because the guy saw me dancing in the queue. Well, oh, so sure that scalable. I guess.
3: this week i spoke to word in black's chief operating officer andrew ramzami so he discussed why there's a need for a collaborative like word in black what success looks like for them and why publishers are more open to collaborating these days but first he told the story of how word in black came about and what their mission is
0: so it's actually it's one of my favorite stories to share um it's both a good and it's sad and unfortunate story about how it came about. But um, the week after the murder of George Floyd, uh, Eleanor Tatum, who's a publisher of a newspaper out of New York called the New York Amsterdam News, which is a black newspaper uh, called our CEO, Nancy Lane of the local media association on a Saturday and said, we need to do something. Um, And she was aware that there were funds that were being raised uh, for racial inequities and social justice, uh, through a thing called Donor Advised Funds um, here in the U.S. And she wanted to make sure that journalism was included in those efforts. So in just two days, uh, Nancy and Eleanor uh, launched uh, a thing called a Fund for Black Journalism. And we invited nine other publishers uh, to join in that effort. And that quickly led to the launch of Award in Black, which was made possible by a, a generous investment from Google, Uh, 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 to the tune of $300,000 from their uh, GNI innovation challenge.
3: So, I mean, George Floyd certainly wasn't the first time that there have been atrocities committed against black people. Do you think it's just the fact that there are more people willing to put money behind solving the problem that meant that 2020 was the, the right time for it to all come together?
0: Yeah, 2020, there was a racial reckoning here in America. And I think when everyone saw the video, And the video hadn't come out until several months after, sadly, and unfortunately, uh, George Floyd's passing. But I think it was finally uh, a a cohort of America said enough was enough and something needed to be done. Um, And what ended up occurring in not only in Minneapolis, but what ended up occurring across the United States um, finally sunk in also uh, at the corporate level where corporations said, "Okay, we too need to be a part of the solution. I think employees uh, across America were demanding that their organizations and their companies become more uh, cognizant of the world that we were living in, um, and I think it just it opened up uh, it opened up a lot of unhealed wounds that occurred in the past. And I think again it was it was a line in the sand. On top of the fact too that you know we had the pandemic going on at the same time too, um, it felt like America America was getting out of control. And some, you know, some people in our country wanted to bring at least some level of comfort and control back to a a narrative that unfortunately has not improved uh, the way that we are, you know, if we were to go back to MLK and his, you know, I have a dream speech. Um, You look at the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964. A lot of things that have happened here in America have happened at a glacial pace. And sadly and unfortunately, I jokingly say now glaciers are melting faster Uh, than the pace of change that's happening here in America around race.
3: So how did you personally get involved in the project?
0: So um, I came to LMA, uh, which is a local media association, uh, in February of 2020, after what turned out to be a a really impactful call with uh, Nancy Lane, the the CEO of LMA, and and Jay Smaller, COO. And to be honest, I had never heard of LMA. Um, I came from public uh, radio, public television, and um, was in that world. Um, But a colleague of mine that I was working with at the time uh, at the Cronkite School, uh, his name is Frank Mungium, said to me uh, that he was leaving to go and join LMA. And I said, oh, what is this LMA you speak of? And you always like to follow people you admire. And you say to yourself that, well, I hope one day that I get to work with them." And Frank was that type of person. Uh, And little did I know that one day uh, would only be a few months down the road. Um, And what struck me about my conversation that I had with Nancy at the time was that The organization was doing really intense work uh, on behalf of our our industry, and it was very hands-on. And Nancy was very transparent about the challenges, but also she was uh, open about the immense opportunity to drive impact. And when she told me about the plans for Word in Black, I knew I had to join LMA. Uh, And the reason why is, is that I felt like for years I had been swimming upstream in our industry to convince them that they needed to focus on underserved audiences. And this was the mission of public media. And I didn't feel like public media was achieving uh, that goal. So here was this perfect opportunity to put in play everything that I had been eager uh, to want to unite under one umbrella, which is really meeting mission uh, purpose and business uh, for the, for the purposes of service servicing communities of color. And then to be able to work with legacy publishers, leveraging the legacy of black publishers some that I recognize from my personal experiences, um and many of them have hundreds of years of publishing. um to me, this was just a special project in the making that I wanted to be a part of from the beginning,
3: yeah, so for people that don't know, um how does it work because I know you you pull in stories that the or the collective sort of cover, but you've also got journalists that write stories yourself,
0: yeah, so it's a it's a multi pronged strategy it really is about uh, leveraging the 10 publishers and their legacy and in the content that they produce every day. We know that many of these conversations that happen at, at a local level, ultimately go national, which effectively is what happened with George Floyd, a local story about a, a black person being uh, murdered by the police goes national. But what ends up happening is that publishers like um, the ones that we work with lose equity in that conversation. So to have a national platform to be able to serve uh, those, uh, to be able to continue those conversations with audiences to make sure that publishers uh, maintain equity in that conversation, to produce content then at the national level that we then um, distribute back to those publishers down at a local level. It's almost like there's a flywheel effect that occurs between um, the word and block structure that uh, sits adjacent with the publishers, what the publishers are doing, and then our role uh, with LMA and LMF uh, providing the infrastructure and the support on the day on a day to day to make sure that it all runs well.
3: You, you said about you wanted it to be really impactful. I suppose, is, is there a way you measure that? Like, is the way I suppose what, what goals have you achieved that you maybe hope to initially?
0: Well, and going back to the beginning of our conversation, when we talked about, you know, the impact of what happened here with George Floyd. We need to impact change when it comes to racial inequities in America. Um, and recently, the former Secretary of Education under President Obama, his name is Dr. Uh, John B. King, was retweeting and, and commenting on the work of our education data reporter, uh, Maya Potiger. Um, Those those types of tweets, that type of understanding about what's happening uh, in education, specifically what happened with the impact of COVID-19 on black communities, um, it, it, we have to get to a point in, in, in these conversations about not just only talking about the problems, but focusing on solutions and all of our stories are solutions based, uh, they're data driven. So if our journalism can impact change at a local school board, at a department of health, uh, and human services, or even at a national level where we're having now a national dialogue and conversation about the change that needs to happen, then we're doing our job. Um, and second to that, and very close to that is ensuring that there's, uh, sustainability for our publishers and that the national brand and the 10 publishers thrive. The black press is so important to our country. There's a reason why the black press was created. Um, It needed to exist because the mainstream media was not covering the topics of, of the black of black communities. And these publishers have been in business for a long time. So having our journalism funded by philanthropic organizations is essential to, to our success. And I will say that the funding community has stepped up big time. We now have two education reporters, two health reporters, uh, soon to be a climate justice reporter, a newsletter editor, a finance reporter, a reporter, a community audience engagement manager, and this has all been funded by philanthropy. So the publishers have been able to establish many health and education beats of their own because of this philanthropic funding. And this is huge, and then on on the brand side, that is growing for us. It's been large. we've working we've been working on sponsorships and branded content campaigns with companies such as McKinsey, ARP, Biogen, and Deloitte. Uh, and this revenue is essential to our success. and ultimately, what we want to show is a, a diversified business model that is mixed uh, and we've seen you know the news is is that journalism is is not doing too well here in the us. Um, it is suffering, and we are trying to show that there there are new business models for transformation that we can all be looking at. And Word and Black is one of those models that I want to be out there showcasing as a success when you can collaborate and collaborate well.
3: Yeah, is the aim eventually to grow other revenue streams, like maybe reader revenue, things like that, or is it very much just mainly sponsorship and, and philanthropic at the moment?
0: Yeah. And then beyond, you know, philanthropic uh, funding and uh, branded content and corporate sponsorship, we're also looking at reader revenue. And that is, you know, it's a long tail, but just, you know, the initial startup of all of that, we've had uh, hundreds of donors give thousands of dollars in in funding to be able to uh, support Word in Black. The comments that we get around the content that we're delivering is the reason why people ultimately support uh, the content as well, too. So, but it, it, but it's a long road. It's a long journey. And I do believe that it will become a major part of our revenue pie overall. But right now, it's a, it's a small component compared to philanthropic funding and branded content.
3: Yeah. And I mean, this is a site that you've had a chance to start from scratch. Um, and you've chosen to focus on a website and a newsletter. I suppose, why those choices? And would you look to expand to anything else sort of later down the line?
0: I, You know, newsletter, newsletters for us are critical. We want to be in... You know, everyone's uh, inbox every day. We want to be at the top of that inbox every day. We're getting to a point where our newsletter will be uh, going out seven days a week. We probably will take Sundays off uh, for rest (laughs) uh, and to go to church. But, um, you know, we want to hit 100,000 subscribers by the end of the year. And, you know, our new uh, community engagement audience manager is going to make this happen. Uh, on the revenue side, we, you know, expect to continue to attract more large brands. In fact, we're going to be announcing a campaign with a very large financial institution very soon. Um, so, to me, we're just at the beginning of what I see is a, a revenue a path that is going to continue to grow, continue to diversify, and then um, with the pandemic, uh, you know, loosening up and people returning back to in-person events. Uh, I see events soon to be a part of our, our strategy as well.
3: So I suppose in terms of distribution, you're not just looking at maybe a TikTok presence or anything else like that just yet?
0: We can chase fads all day. I don't know how, you know, what's going to happen next. Um, we would never ignore the fact that, the, that there are always trends, right? And that trends move very quickly. And I think what we're seeing is um, certainly audience behavior has changed trying to reach younger audiences uh, and more engaged audiences on different platforms would always be a desire, but I would say that we're not going to chase a trend for the sake of chasing a trend. I think we want to create quality journalism. Um, And if that quality journalism happens to reside on TikTok, so be it. Um, But you know, it is, it is a, it is a challenging space every day to figure out which platform you should be on or what thing you should be pushing. Uh, But I think first and foremost, having, you know, quality products, through a newsletter, through through content that, that can be delivered on a website, you know, you'll be surprised. We do a lot of back-end work with publishers to accelerate their digital transformation, and it starts with the core of a CMS, um, and that's very basic, so, but, but it is essential. So I think building a strong foundation for what we have first is more important than necessarily chasing a, a, a trend on a platform.
3: Yeah, I, I'm, not on, I'm not on TikTok and I don't think I will be anytime soon. Um, I just think it's interesting in the sense that uh, I, I know I've spoken to some new set of publishers that find that certainly sort of to put a number on it, the under 30s maybe aren't necessarily reading emails. So they're sort of, they end up having to go onto social as a way to try and sort of reach that young, those younger audiences. But
0: it goes back to sustainability is what you're doing there sustainable. And I think right now, you know, the long tail for uh, TikTok has not yet proven out whether it's sustainable, um, and again, it's easy to chase. You can throw you know good money after bad money, and then find out you know five or six months down the road that the the audience behavior is completely changed. Um, and again, we're delivering very serious uh, subject matter experts around topics that require a little bit more nuance than posting a TikTok video. Not to take anything away from TikTok, but we're <laughs> dealing with very complicated subjects and 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 topics that while I would love to figure out how we can get younger audiences on TikTok, uh, we also recognize too, there's an audience funnel. Uh, there's, you know, metrics that we have to convert and what what is our best strategy right now? Our best strategy is a quality, uh, quality journalism mat- uh, matching with a newsletter product that uh, we can get beh- behind every day and see audiences engaging with us uh, on that platform.
3: Where do you see the biggest opportunities for growth this year? I suppose either, either revenue or content or, both,
0: I mean, I think it. We will continue to uh, grow with newsletters. We will continue to grow with our publishers. Um, another byproduct of all of this is that the content that we produce for Word and Black also shows up in print, and uh, we'll be able to soon uh, report through uh, another project that we are working on called the uh, Night LMA Bloom Lab. Is that our publishers will see um, growth in their audiences, both on the digital side and the print side. Uh, This is about dual transformation. It is not simply about saying that the print product is dead um, while it becomes increasingly challenging to continue to deliver print because of cost uh, around the actual print product and distribution. It has been a a lifesaver for the Black community during COVID-19. It is a product that has actually expanded um, and continue to grow uh, within those communities. So I see growth on both sides, both on the digital side and the print side, and I think they both can feed off of one another. Some of our publishers have done uh, amazing uh, work to completely rebuild uh, their print product from the ground up. Uh, and in one and, and one publisher in particular is Larry Lee from the Sacramento Observer. He's a second generation uh, owner of the newspaper. Completely rebuilt his print product from the ground up, uh, and it is a beautiful. Uh, beautifully produced piece of of print that comes out weekly that many people want to get their hands on.
3: In the publishing industry, historically, it's been very, very competitive, quite cutthroat. So why do you think collaborations like this are able to thrive today when perhaps they wouldn't have done 20, 30 years ago when it was much more cutthroat?
0: Well, first, collaborations are hard. Uh, And we say that every day at LMA. And if we could print t-shirts and sell them in the gift shop, we would. Um, but word and black has been the easiest collaboration to work with in terms of cooperation among participants. The word and black publishers have deep relationships with one another. Uh, they've known each other for several years. There's a lot of trust between all of them, and that's why this works. Um, there's a very special relationship also between LMA and the publishers, and I think that's part of the secret sauce. We have a Friday call that we do every Friday with the publishers um, at 1 p.m. Eastern. And if you had to say to someone, hey, we're going to have a phone call every Friday at one o'clock uh, to meet, there'd be a group of people would say, why in good God's green earth would you want to meet on a Friday afternoon? Um, that's the worst time of the week to meet. I'm thinking about what I'm going to do for the weekend. But that tells you about the commitment of these publishers that they see Uh, an opportunity that they want to grab. We at LMA have been able to uh, help steward that and be a good fiduciary shepherd of all of that as well, too. And I think we need more collaboration. Uh, This is not a time and a place in a space where publishers should be going it alone. Um, We're very open and transparent at LMA. We have conversations with you know, other member organizations that some people might say they might be our competitors, but we don't believe anyone's our competitor. At the end of the day, we have communities that are out there that need access to real-time information, context to the challenges and issues that our communities are facing every day. And journalism as the fourth estate provides a, a very important role. And the black press provides an even more important role to serve their communities in ways in which no one has been able to do before. So to me, when you take all of those things, and and Michael Dell, I used to work at Dell, he talked about the combinatorial effect. To me, collaboration is a great example, and Word in Black is a great example of a combinatorial effect where you take subject matter experts, legacy publishers, uh, audiences who are, you know, starving for important content. You put all those things together, you mix it. Um there's something very special there.
3: Do you think it's a kind of model that could work in other parts of the world? So could we see a sort of UK version of Word in Black, Canada version, other places where people still struggle with these issues?
0: Absolutely. And we've already begun to do uh, work following the footsteps of of Word in Black. Uh, we've launched a new collaborative called News is Out, which is a queer media collaborative focusing on 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 queer LGBTQ audiences. We've shared all of our lessons with that group. We've rolled out the exact same game plan. We've already, you know, got funding, received funding from Google and ARP and, and McKinsey, who's uh, supporting their newsletter. Um, doing the same thing with climate. Climate is the biggest, you know, one of the biggest uh, challenges that our world's going to face, literally. You know, we, there are a couple of different uh, strategies that are in play. There are topic-based collaborations, which, you know, we we've, we've just discussed. They're audience-based collaboratives, um, they're regional based collaboratives. So I think there are you know, a couple of different ways that one can kind of slice and dice how we're doing this. But you know, to be able to do collaborative reporting, it's not just about the journalism, which there are a lot of uh, journalism collaborations that are out there. And everyone sits around a table and talks about, well, what stories are we going to do this week? That is like one third of the discussion that we have at Word and, uh, Word and Black it's about the business opportunity it's about the audience opportunity it's about the content opportunity it's about the technology opportunity too um this is all about again a flywheel effect that uh transform publishers at the local level through this national uh brand that the publishers all um you know have equity in for
3: our listeners if if anybody's sitting there thinking you know they'd like to look at bringing people together You said collaboration wasn't easy. What would your one piece of advice be to anybody looking to collaborate together with other publishers?
0: I'm going to steal a line from my colleague uh, here at LMA, Frank Mungium. Uh, And he has a line which is about unity of purpose. You have to be unified in your purpose in what you're trying to do. And um, it's all about intention. It's all about um, trust and relationships and what we're trying to do together collectively. Um, And know that, you know, not everyone is going to agree, but if you can get that unity of purpose, it makes this work so much easier, so much more enjoyable. And then to me, the impact uh, multiplies as a result of, well, if I add on top of what you're talking about and I add on top of what you're talking about, um, it makes it better. And to me, it reminds me of my background was theater. I came from uh, uh, being a drama major in high school but you know, one of the best classes I took was improv and you know, the world of improv, there's the, there's the magic rule. There are no buts, just ands. right? You don't say, but you don't say, no, you say, and, and how are you going to do this? And how am I going to become a part of this? And I will tell you there uh, again, stealing from, from my uh, colleague, Frank uh, it's about gives and gets. If you think you're only going to get stuff out of it and you're not going to give anything in, it's not going to work. And we've had several publishers who have given a lot to to Word and Black, Um, sweat equity, contacts, relationships that they uh, that they've had. Many of our brands that support Word and Black came from our publishers because of their relationships. That's what makes it so much better. Um, And I hope more people uh, go down that path in journalism. We don't need competition. Let's replace competition with collaboration.
3: I feel like I could probably sort you an entire merch line based on some of the lines you've said in that. You could have sort of, you know, collaboration's hard and unity of purpose on the back and <laughs> you could get a whole, whole range out doing this.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And again, it, to me, that is the product, right? Like if we think about um, what we're doing here, we try, we try to productize almost everything. So it's, a, it's, you know, it's like a joke and a pun, but really that's what it is at the end of the day. That's why the product works so well. And if you think about any great product, right? If you just take a step, step back, get out of journalism, get out of the media space, any great product that we love and enjoy brings all those things together, right? And there are some things that you're willing to also uh, overcome because, you know, my iPhone, it's great. The battery doesn't last all day, right? If you told people, you know, 10 years ago, you're going to wear a watch in the future and it's only going to last you 24 hours and you're going to have to charge it every day. You'd be like, why would I ever wear a watch that I can't wear for 24 hours? That's just insane. But we all do now, right? So it's the same thing. Journalism is not a perfect product. Um, It has a lot of bias, which we have to work on. It has a lot of technology challenges that we have to work on. The business model needs to be worked on. So you think about all these things. But if you bring the best of all those things together, um, people will seek you out. They will find you. They will support you. Um, and to me, that's what is at stake. It's our communities that, that really matter. And the pandemic has really shown us how important journalism was. And it's not just about misinformation. There are audiences who actually want our information. They want to engage with us. And we've spent a lot of time in our world trying to focus on misinformation and disinformation. There will be, There will be people who will believe that until the cows come home. And guess what? The cows aren't coming home. Uh, The the world might, the world might come to a a really bad end if we don't make some change. So we've got to focus on audiences that want to support us, audiences that want to engage with us. And we have that. And I think um, part of our industry has turned uh, its, its nose to those audiences who are already there, who really want to support our product.
3: The last thing we ask all our guests is what's the last thing you read or saw or watched that really affected you?
0: You know, I am reading a book right now, and it's on my table here. It's called Adrift by Scott <laughs> Galloway, uh, and I'm a big fan of Scott Galloway, and sometimes uh, what he says bleeds into my brain, and then I tweet about it, and then people are like, didn't Scott Galloway say that? Um, but, you know, there, there there are real acute problems happening in our world, and there's a lot of data that one could just go into this, you know, to Scott's book and say, That's going to be my niche, you know, journalism newsletter product that I'm going to focus on. Um, You know, and Scott talks about, uh, you know, we have more people that are growing up in the the U.S. that are uh, not getting married, that are very lonely. Um, There could be a whole newsletter product, you know, and I'm just talking about Bumble, but like there's a whole thing that exists right there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I'm always, always reading books. That's one book that's there. And then my next book that's in queue Uh, is Rick Rubin's uh, The Creative Act. So I have books everywhere in my my office.
1: And the Publisher Podcast Award Shortlist Reveal is taking place on Wednesday the 15th of February at 12 p.m. GMT on Twitter for those of you still on there, or online and by email shortly afterwards. We are delighted by the quality of entries this year, as we are every year, but again, with the evolution and sophistication and the maturation of the space, I feel like we're seeing better, more exciting podcasts every single time we do these.
2: And the Publisher Newsletter Awards will be opening think on March the 1st to be honest we're just finalising the categories they should go out next week, you can have a look, we'll tell you on Twitter and in the newsletter but then we'll let you know when you can start entering your wonderful publisher newsletters for the publisher
1: newsletter awards
3: I think there's a mailing list to sign up to at publishernewsletters.com isn't
1: there? There is, get on it and just while we plug on our websites as well, you can go to Voices.media for our entire back catalogue of podcasts and conversations episodes. You can also sign up to our newsletter there, as well as kick in a couple of quid if you want to support us via our link to the Ko-Fi page. And do sign up to our newsletter. It goes out every single day of the working week, contains the four most important stories that we've found, in addition to a link to the latest episode of the podcast.
3: And snarky comments from Chris, one day in three.
1: On Wait that. To be fair. Three days out
2: of five you're gonna get some kind of snarky comment.
3: Am I the only non-snarky one? You can
1: snark. I've seen you snark on there. I, was I was do to yeah. Say, like, yeah. No, I mean, we're so actually Not, not quite Are we just are we just a
3: Monday to Friday of snark?
1: We're just edging up against it's like four out of five days, but we guaranteed snark. It's it's for your own good, it just doesn't necessarily feel like it at the time.
3: So What's we're like? the den- we're dental floss.
1: Pretty much.
2: <laughs> I, I like to think there's more as sort of um Interdental, but much less random, much more focused.
3: We need to sign this off now.
1: <laughs> Come back next week for more dental and holiday. interdental advice from myself, Esther, and Gobshite. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <Ta-ta>.
3: Bye. <laughs>